Right. Good afternoon. My name is Brent Ulenhop, and welcome today to today's Keeping It Simple edition, Scoring with a Bank Shot. Uh, along with Mike Green and Harley Bassman, we're privileged to have investment banker Chris Whalen uh, on today's call. Chris is the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors and a New York City-based investment uh, banker with decades of experience. He um, Co-founded the Institutional Risk Analytics, is the editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst Newsletter, along with several other uh, major financial publications. He also has a strong finance-focused social media presence. And prior to his uh, current role, he has uh, held roles at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Bear Stearns, and was a senior managing director at the Kroll Bond Rating Agency. Uh, so again, we're going to be uh, discussing the, the banking sector today. Just uh, one quick housekeeping item. For any questions that the audience may have, feel free to submit those at the bottom under the Q&A feature. And uh, as a friendly reminder, everything discussed on today's call is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Mike. Thank you very much, Brent. I appreciate it. I'm actually coming from New York, where Chris uh, is based. You you can see 425 uh, Park Avenue in the background here. Um, Chris, I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you. I wish that we had gotten you earlier in the year when banks were the topic du jour, because the problems <laughs> appear to have all been solved. Um, we have nothing more to worry about in the banking system. We can go on and, and life is good, right? Well, sort of. It's better than it was at the end of the third quarter, which, you know, to give you a number, we were adjusting mark to market on the industry balance sheet over 20%. And my surrogate. Wow. So 20% of the entire banking industry yeah. loans, uh, capital you know, base effectively was being, being, uh, was a loss under the hold to hold to maturity portfolios. Yeah. A fire sale analysis. So it's better okay. now. We're back to August yields. So we would probably <laughs> do 12 to 15% instead of 22%. That's good. Um, but, you know, depending on what sector you look at, it either helps or it doesn't help. It doesn't help commercial. Uh, it doesn't help multifamily, which is having its own structural, you know, idiosyncratic problems that have nothing to do with interest rates. Uh, residential is still blissful. It's almost negative in terms of loss given default on bank owned one to fours, believe it or not. They went negative in the third quarter again. So you have this tale of two markets. The commercial side's getting hammered. The residential side, credit cards, autos, not so much. So now we've seen elements of normalization of credit metrics on the res on, on the, the household side, right? So credit card defaults and delinquencies are beginning to rise, but yeah. from very low levels. Um, auto, we're seeing similar dynamics. In some segments, we're seeing incredible stress, right? Particularly young people who did not have the equity to trade in a prior vehicle to pay down their um, lease. though They're now facing extraordinarily high payments, which are creating stress, particularly as student loan payments come back on for that sub-segment. But that's a small group and nobody really cares about young people anyway, right? No, I, I, I think... Let, let me give you another metric to illustrate this for you. Um, before we started, we were talking a little bit about where the pain points are. The bottom of the credit stack, the bottom 20% of households is getting hammered. 
If you look at FHA defaults for low uh, FICO, high LTV loans, they're in the mid-teens, Michael. That's hideous. The rest of the population is normal. It's, it's still in single digits. So there's two different stories here, I think. The, the lower-income households that had a tough time during COVID are getting absolutely hammered again. They also have, I think, fewer opportunities in this economy. And everybody else is having a party. Look at New York City. You don't see any empty restaurants, do you? Uh, but they're mostly filled with tourists. <laughs> so yeah, I no, my, my, I feel the, the, good about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Well, as a New York native, you're you're, you're de- or as a New Yorker, you're definitely struggling with it. Harley, are you coming from New York or are you coming from California? I'm in California right now, but I'll be back in civilization soon enough. Oh, All no, right. Well, that's uh, so we, we, we only Harley could think of Laguna Beach as, or Newport Beach as Laguna Beach. I'm sorry, as being the uh, the 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 out wild out, out west wild. Um, but um, you know, no, I definitely am seeing that. We also are seeing like one of the things that is stri- that is striking to me is how much the the um, hospitality market has tightened up in New York City in just the past couple of months. The removal of Airbnb from short-term rentals took something like 25% of the capacity out of the market. The housing of immigrants has taken another 10%. Um, And so there's just an extraordinary tightness that exists in the market. Um, Hotel rooms, I'm finding, are, you know, $800 a night is not an outrageous price to pay for a fairly standard hotel room all of a sudden. That's right. It feels like preservation, are... Michael. The Airbnb thing was predictable, wasn't it? You know, it really was. I mean, our objective is to fight inflation, so our way to do that is by taking off capacity. But it does, of course, ra- that <laughs> raises the question: How quickly before those properties that can only be rented now for a month at a time, how yeah. quickly that business model begins to fall apart, and we start to encounter distress and servicing uh, that causes those properties to come back onto the market? But they're not going back into the luxury housing market or into the no. you know luxury rental market. No, they you, you can't convert most commercial buildings to residential. They're doing the flat iron building, for example, which is a small building. I think they can do Tiny that. Building. Uh, yeah. Really cool building. People will want to live there, right? But most of these things you'd have to gut. If you wanted to keep the steel frame, you'd literally have to gut everything and start again. Well, you, I mean, the, the the features that make sense for a Wall Street trading floor do not make any sense whatsoever for wow. an individual house, right, um, or or residence. So look at um, Third Avenue. What are we going to do with that stock? We uh, got a bunch of B and C buildings that nobody wants. Uh, I, you know, I just started the Robert Moses biography. Uh, I've been yeah. listening to it on Spotify. It's wonderful. Nothing has changed. The city needs another Robert Moses. We got to come in and remake this thing. And the cost is going to be mind-boggling. It's it, it's a fascinating point, right? Because remember, when Robert Moses came in and remade the city, the city was still at a point, I mean, most people don't think of it this way, but New York City was 15% of the U.S. population lived in the confines, the, the five boroughs of New York yeah. City in 1900. Today, and when Robert Moses was working in the immediate aftermath of World War II, that number it got easier because so many people moved out to the suburbs, right? So you actually had a declining population. Um, But New York City really hasn't grown for basically 120 years. It really only grew in the last 15 years or so. 
with somewhat predictable impact. But now you're watching that have to be reinvented and rediscovered. And I agree with you. That's hundred. You know, as much as Robert Moses has been dragged through the mud for the past, you know, ten years, we need somebody who's going to come in and reinvent things in that way. Well, the the change after COVID and the political disruption of COVID to commercial properties, uh, the way that the political class here has demonized the business sector and chased everybody out. You know, my old friend Dale Hemmerdinger was uh, chairman of the MTA. He passed away uh, about a year ago. And he had always said to me, you know, I have to invest in Charlotte and all these other places because in New York, I'm the enemy. And that's bad. New York City cannot survive unless it has a business component. You know, business pays half of the freight. And yep. yet, if you look at the assets, if you follow real estate as I do, if you read The Real Deal, which is, I think, a must-read right now in credit, uh, every day we're seeing major restructurings. And I hope, ultimately, these assets will be repurposed. But for the banks who own the prime mortgage paper on this stuff, they're going to take some hits. Uh, you see it in the numbers. About a third of that bank, uh, commercial and industrial category, $2.5 trillion, is explicitly real estate. But all of it has real estate exposure, Michael. Yeah. You know that. Most banks yeah. are 100% real estate exposure. But so, Chris, will those losses be greater than budgeted for? Uh, in terms of CISO projections, yes. Yeah, I, mean, you, you see, I mean, you've had no defaults for the last decade, so they've built up a cushion. Yeah, but it, it's even more interesting. Michael was reminding me of this when he started. These are sectors that were interest only, that assumed an appreciation and assumed a role that was painless. Now, as we come up on the wall of maturities, we're going to be refinancing these things at current coupons. Or maybe good spreads, but the point is it'll be a more traditional financing. It won't be an interest-only balloon. They're going to probably have to do something very old-fashioned with some of these assets. And I think in many cases, the sponsor, quote, owner, is going to walk away. So the bank will sit there owning it at 50 cents on the dollar. The real question is, will they emerge whole, even if they own the asset at 50 cents on the dollar? I'm curious, when you th talk about this, like the, I think the wall of maturity is, is the big story of, of, of all the stuff that was taken out during QE. So 2020 to 2022 at these very low rates. Um, and it, it hasn't come yet. It's not even next year, really the year after that. But right. you, know, you, you anticipate. Um, <clears throat> how much of that's going to be like commercial real estate going, being transferred to, to a bank and they take a loss and that doesn't really affect the economy. I mean, it just, you know, there's money moved around Versus like real businesses where if they default, people lose their jobs. Is, do you have a sense of that at all? Well, it's going to be both because if the business gets in trouble, then they're going to abandon the office. Okay. So the lender ends up with the office. If it's a mall, for example, that's lost some key tenants, but it's still viable, the bank will work with them depending on what market the real estate is located in. And they may modify the loan. The new uh, really trendy category for analysts, by the way, is troubled debt restructurings because the gap rules were changed. So like consumer loans, we're modifying everything, which, you know, okay, I'm not going to do a foreclosure, which is good because banks always lose monies on foreclosures. Uh, but on the other hand, if I have a weak obligor, am I going to end up foreclosing on that property in a couple of years? Maybe. This, yeah. Sorry. But, no, but this is forward. Go on. Yeah. 
No, but it's the key question about interest rates, because if short rates fall next year, but the long end goes up, all of the financings that we're talking about here are going to get priced against the long end. That's how we price things. Residential mortgages get priced against a 10 or 15 year uh, piece of the curve, right? So the warehouse. back on that, but we'll listen to it for later well, on. Well, we'll see. You can finance off the short end, too. We'll no, see innovation. I, right? mortgage, rates come to, mortgage rates are driven by the shape of the curve more than anything else out there. So, But that's too yeah. technical for, for this conversation. I, I want to get back. We, we've seen in the last few days here, seemingly the the, the immaculate landing. I mean, <laughs> IG's at 56, down from like 60, 74. So it's lowest average. Uh, high yield is 365. VIX is 12. Yet we have this big maturity wall, which is the, you know, th that's the meat. That's the story here for, for geeks like us. Is the market wrong or are we? No, they just have way too much cash. That's the story of this period, is that the cash that was injected by the Fed, by Congress, you know, in many, many ways is still with us. You know, I've been watching this in the residential world. Escrow balances have been financing uh, lenders with falling volumes even until the beginning of this year. We're only seeing them having to pull on their escrow lines uh, or on their warehouse and advance lines now. That's extraordinary. So I Can think you explain we, that? Pa pause for one second, Chris. Can you well, actually explain that for the, the, the broader audience and me? <laughs> well, um, during COVID, we had very low interest rates after the first quarter of the year, right? That caused yep. a surge in lending, which in turn cause a surge in refinance activity. When you refinance a mortgage, in other words, you're writing a new mortgage, the old one gets paid off. The principal amount in that payoff sloshes around the system for more than 30 days. So the lenders are allowed to borrow that money and use that to make advances on delinquent loans, and then they pay it back. Okay, This is a dirty little secret in the industry. They're not supposed to do that, but they do. So COVID and you know the Fed's reaction, quantitative easing, provided this huge wave of cash that made all of the COVID loan forbearance go away as a policy problem. They didn't help the commercial landlords, keep in mind. But you know the residential guys got paid by making a lot of new loans. That's how they absorbed the cost of helping millions of Americans who couldn't pay or wouldn't pay, right? So you wind the clock forward to today, rates have gone up, volumes have fallen, there's no longer that huge flow of refinancing activity, right? But who's doing well? The big servicers that own lots of mortgage servicing assets who get paid every month. They're going to inherit the earth and everybody else is going to go to the beach. In fact, we're going to Laguna, just so you know, Harley. <laughs> no, listen, the, right, smart, the smart money in mortgages should have shut their firms down at the end of 2022, wrote their people a big check, and went to Laguna and say, come back in two years. So, so now if I, if, if I think about that, because that's very similar to the dynamics of a credit fund, right? Most people think about credit funds as the cash is generated from the coupon. That's actually not true. About 20% of the index refinances in any given year. And so the cash flow to a high yield fund, for example, is typically somewhere around 25 to 30%, depending on the level of yields of the fund is flowing through in cash in any given year. And that perpetuates the dynamics of the refinancing. It's one of the reasons why we see the you know Chuck Prince elements of the game, as long as you're not seeing redemptions that exceed those cash flow characteristics, 
That's right. In all likelihood, you're desperate to reinvest proceeds. That's right. Right. And That's so right. when we see opportunities like we've seen, people are willing to step into it. If the fear has been removed from the market, that urgency to put money back to work encourages them to remove covenants, to do all sorts of things, to make their paper more attractive to the lender than anyone else. Oh, um, and look at all of the high quality opportunities, Michael. You could go out and buy Ginny's at 80. <laughs> and now they're at 89, you know, three weeks. <laughs> Pretty incredible. It really is. It's it's actually quite frustrating because, you know, um, I know Harley is actually pulling his hair out. Oh, my God, it's too late. Um, the uh, he's, he's pulling his hair out on the risk to refinancing and mortgages. Right. So, you know, we're seeing all the paper will now hit the potential for refinancing. The yields are falling, et cetera. Um, you know, this is creating a positive impulse. But it also perversely is taking income out of the system, and I would argue making fixed income, unfortunately, a lot less attractive than it was even several months ago, um, certainly relative to where it was several weeks ago. But, but think about this. Low FICO, uh, low-income households are still doing cash-out refis because they need the cash. I hear this anecdotally from a lot of FHA lenders I work with. On the other hand, home equity loans are flat. They were actually down last quarter. So even though, you know, in theory, you could go out and get a 10 or 12% HELOC as opposed to a 25% credit card, it's still not enough, Michael. That book is running off 6 7% a year because they mostly have seven-year fixed maturities on those loans. But still, you know, all the funny uh, seconds and closed-end things that have emerged in the last year or so, they're not growing that fast yet. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it is really interesting that, that, that you're highlighting that underlying dynamic. Um, and I do think that that actually is certainly contributing. As you think about the refi component, we often forget that people are doing the equivalent of playing credit card roulette. They're transferring balances. They're running through their credit lines. And then when the opportunity emerges for them to refinance, if they do own a property, they'd far rather take out a home equity line of credit against their one you know, truly secured asset and get that at 12% or 13% as compared to 29%. And the consumer today, Michael, is much, much more sophisticated and much more willing to trade quickly than they were a decade ago, before two, you know, even before 2008. Today, Explain what you mean by that. Help me understand what you mean by that. If, if you touch them at the right time with a refinance offer, say now, you know, we've had a big market rally. You won't see it in the fourth quarter numbers, but the first quarter should be good for the industry and for banks that do resi, right? This gives you an opportunity to refinance some of that stuff out there that was done, or maybe even some floaters. You could take those out. But the point is, is that consumers have no loyalty. They will go where the best monthly payment is, just like the car, just like the credit card. And, you know, lenders try and establish a, a relationship, this high touch sort of thing. It doesn't work because if you've got a bunch of kids and you're going to take out fifty or hundred dollars a month in payments, you're going to do it. You Chris, know, I'll push the, back on. I'll push back on that. It is much harder to refinance now than it used to be. If you go back to oh five, oh six, oh seven, the gross whack to the coupon was forty or fifty bips. Mm -hmm. This year, the gross whack to, to, to coupon spread has been eighty to ninety. As a matter of fact, you're, yeah. you're at ninety one spread on Fannie sixes. So, which basically means it's much more expensive to refinance. And much harder to do it than it was 15 years ago. 
So I, I wouldn't say it's easy now. Well, it, so there's a couple of components, right, Harley? I mean, one is is that we've removed the, hey, just sign here twice and we're all good sort of documentation that was required in the 2005 oh, yeah. to 2007 time period, right? That's gone where the mortgage broker was going to, you know, the no doc loans where the mortgage broker was going to basically fill out everything and make it all up. That's been gone for 15 years. It didn't really come back in any meaningful way in this last cycle what did happen was that we ignored a lot of credit metrics because we did, you know, we were encouraged or people were encouraged to do so in the uh, coronavirus type dynamics, right? This goes back to a point you and I talk about all the time, Harley. It's not that the banks themselves were totally crazy. It's just that they facilitated some crazy behavior. Well, no doc loads are, are going to wide or tighten the, uh, the spread, you know, no, I mean, it's, it's, really. it's, it's how, how much the system is geared to doing it. And we've, Fired all these people, you know, a, a decade and change ago. <laughs> hey, quick, quick, yeah. I, I, I want to switch over to another idea over here. Um, I'm one of the few people that actually believes in Dodd Frank. I, I, I believe that we're supposed to. I believe in the Volcker rule, uh, despite the fact it ended my career on Wall Street. Um, I, I think that banks, at least the big banks, are regulated utilities, no different than Con Ed, where the because if you're going to be allowed to borrow at the Treasury rate, which is what you're doing with the passbook account, right? If you can borrow the government treasury rate, um, you should be able to use that money to then speculate. So I, I kind of agree with this whole notion of the Volcker rule. Um, looking at the world of regulation, which is, I, I don't know that you do, what are the things in the regulatory world that are gonna drive various activities and encourage banks or people to do various things that are new now that weren't new five years ago, or because of the world now, it's like it's important to us going forward. Well, I do look at regulation. Unfortunately, I'm writing comments on the, the end game proposal for Basel. Um, I disagree with you on Volcker. The conflicts rule in Volcker was good, but telling the banks not to make markets around their portfolio, it's a really bad idea. There's, there's no reason why Chase and the other big banks shouldn't make markets for the little banks so that they know that there's somebody they're trading their common and their preferreds. You know, these are important markets. Uh, every time we have a problem, you look at the SEC rulemaking, you look at everything else going on in Washington right now, we take market function away. And we tell ourselves that this is good, like centralized clearing of treasuries, which I think is a disaster. I think Janet Yellen is making a mistake. But, you know, they look at the basis trade and they don't like it. I, and I get it. I understand why you want repo locked up. Both of us grew up with that, right? We want enough to trade that's going to clear. But on the other hand, um, are these banks going to provide innovation? No, that's happening in non-bank land. In fact, if you go back to the 70s and the 80s when non-bank finance came back after World War II, um, really that's the driver for growth in the economy. It's not been the banks. You know, it's funny. I'm finishing a biography of Stan Middleman, the founder of Freedom Mortgage. And one of the reasons I worked on the book with Stan is because we get to talk about the 1990s and the 1980s. What happened in the 1980s? Citibank came out with the first no-doc mortgage. It was called Mortgage Power. You remember that? And you had Manny Haney and Household Finance and all these other guys out there with fringe products. We'll see some of that this time. But I, I'm not really worried about the mortgage sector. Like you said, it's totally locked down. I'm not worried about documentation and things like that. But I do think, frankly, our big banks are under-levered. They're not making enough money. Uh, and we have got to stop 
this layering on one capital requirement after another, or they will be utilities. They'll be useless. And I think that's kind of what the left wants anyway. They hate banks. But what what, well, what things will happen to us, all of us, because of regulation? Like, are there any new regulations? Like, Mike, you always identify a number of regulations that have caused markets to move this way or that way. Is there something new or interesting in bank regulation or overall finance regulation that we weren't watching but you noticed? Well, risk finance will come from non-banks and funds. It will not come from banks. I'll give you a great example. I have a friend in Texas who used to work for the Bank of El Paso. You know who the Bank of El Paso banked early on? Hilton Hotels. They banked Hilton until they couldn't. It had outgrown them. Uh, the same guy, by the way, made a drawer loan to a young welder. That welder turned into the founder of Trinity Industries. Okay? So those are two examples of loans that banks won't make today. They can't. I mean, hell, Brian Moynihan won't even let me buy your ETF. You realize he's protecting me. <laughs> I'm very aware of this. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is we've regulated these organizations to such a degree, and yet they still have most of our money. The deposits locked inside Bank America, which are not being deployed usefully, which are underutilized, uh, I think is a drag on the economy. And yet, unfortunately, the people in Washington making policy are so completely removed from finance that when you try and talk to them about this, they look at you like you're from Mars. You know, there's two different worlds. Well, so it becomes an interesting question, though, right? Because I, like I came from a dinner last night where there's a lot of discussion around the dynamics of housing, residential in particular, and um, the hidden levels, the hidden pockets of leverage that are being used in the housing sector um, and the oversupply that is being developed in particularly new construction, um, more multifamily than single family. But they, I was I was surprised at how strongly at least some people are arguing that the oversupply in single family is actually quite high as well. Do you have any thoughts there? Below the median price, which is like 400, a little above 400K, Michael, I would tell yep. you there's not a lot of oversupply. Above the median price, yes, that's called Texas, and also parts of Florida. Um, you know, there's just the human condition. We can't help but see a herd characteristic in development. You saw this in New York City a decade ago with commercial. Then you saw yep. everybody run out of the Northeast and go to Texas. And they have been building things in Texas. And as they do this, by the way, they make the existing office and residential stock completely uh you know more abundant it's got to be redeveloped you see this in florida there's so many existing buildings down there which nobody wants now they're waiting for a new building <laughs> so what i would say is there's a misallocation operating here in different localities but you don't have enough house in the northeast nobody wants to build it's too expensive so let me ask that for a second, because, I mean, that's also part of the natural development of it, right? So when elevators yeah. were introduced, the existing stock of, you know, two, three-story walk-ups became uneconomic. We had to replace them. Uh -huh. um, have there been innovations in the past two decades, you know, different forms of elevator banks, superior climate control systems, uh, changes in uh, design that would justify, you mentioned Third Avenue, as we were talking before, that would justify tearing down that Class B and C property and replacing it with new property, either on the residential side or on the office side, 
that maybe this is an opportunity? I think definitely you can build better. There's no question. But then you look at New York City and what is your cost to build of anything? I don't care what it is. It's very high. So your entry point for New York is your, your problem, essentially. You go to another locality, if you go, you know, come up here to Westchester. The cost to build is half of the city. So that's, you know, when we moved out here in 2021, by the way, I've got a three sitting in a Fannie Mae pool somewhere. We cut our expenses in half. I can't yeah. make New York City affordable. There is no way to do that. So while it's obvious that we have to do something with those properties, there's no question. I think the pricing is going to have to change because there's just no way to do anything in New York City right now with all of the cost involved in building. Now, I remember I, I lived at 40 Central Park South. My friend Dale owns that building. And right next door, we have the Helmsley. Remember that old hotel? They were getting yep. ready to knock that thing down and build another 100-story tower. And they, they realized that they had missed the opportunity. They were too late in the cycle. But, you know, that's New York. You still have stuff being built right now. And I don't understand how the economics are going to work long term. So does it matter in a systemic way? I mean, when we saw the GFC, the way I would argue, so most people think about the GFC as home prices were too high. When home prices fell, um, all hell broke loose. I, I don't, I actually would point to the behavior of the Case-Shiller indices, et cetera, to suggest that the problem was never really about home prices. It was actually about the assumptions that went into even more levered structures like the CDOs and the CDO squared and the tranched mortgages, the AAAs, et cetera. And just to remind people kind of of what transpires there, you take a pool of a million or a thousand mortgages, you put them all together, you split off the cash flows that are going to be paid first, and you can then apply tremendous amounts of leverage to that cash flow um, in order to effectively turn it into a much more economic piece of paper, right? You're expanding the pool of assets. And this is one of the things that I keep trying to remind people, you know, you hear on FinTwit and elsewhere, nobody wants fixed income. All anybody wants is equities. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I'm having these conversations, people are like, well, what about call overwriting strategies? Or what about buffered products? Or what about, and like, just, you know, Harley knows this better than anyone, but when you take a, equity and you sell a call against it, all you've done is created no documentation or no, you know zero covenant covlight lending activity, right? You've created a fixed income bond on which you have no claims against the initial uh, underlying security. But right? the same people are going to buy an ETF that's options based and pays monthly. Uh, I just we like that. those in many situations. No, but, but they're yeah. appropriate. But you know what yeah. I'm saying? They buy that, they buy stocks. And they're not exactly. Buy traditional bonds. <laughs> exactly. It's actually really interesting because most people I don't think think in those payoff terms. And so they don't realize when they look at these structured type products, what they're actually saying is, I desperately want fixed income. Right. Yeah. I'm desperately looking for solutions like Harley is offering me. Right. But if you call it fixed income as compared to a and you can't call it structured products either, because that's a scary word, right? But if you call it a call overriding or a hedged equity or a um, uh, a buffered fund, right, which is just a way of converting it into a fixed income type payout, people seem to be falling all over themselves for it. It's part of, well, for me, it was part of what allowed me to look at the behavior that we we're seeing in the fixed income space to be like, guys, this is not actually about the demand side of the story. Right. But go back to what Harley was saying about spreads. 
Think about yep. uh, if you were a young person on a hedge desk at a mortgage firm in the last two weeks, how are you feeling about life as we go into the close of the year? Uh, lots of losses on hedges. Uh, yep. Pipeline is light. It won't fill up until probably the middle of January. Uh, God almighty. The volatility we see both ways uh, is just striking. I don't know how people can manage a business that is interest rate dependent in this market. It's actually funny. You're, you're, you're echoing the language that Volcker himself used in 1980 when describing monetary policy in debates yep. with uh, Roos, right? You know, saying, look, you know, people forget they think that Volcker was using interest rate policy. He was targeting a level of money supply, right? That's That was the theory behind what he was doing. And so they were changing the money supply and interest rates fell out of that. And so if you look at the the the, the behavior, you know, at one point Volcker, I think, cut yield, effectively cut yields. I think it was six and a half or seven and a half percent in a single meeting. Right. Yes. Um, 750 Simpler basis times. points, if I remember correctly. Right. Simpler <laughs> times. Exactly. Harley, how would that feel to you if you if, if, if uh, we saw rates cut by 650 basis points or increased by 650 basis points in a single <laughs> meeting? Yeah, it'd be fun. Yeah, well, that would be an interesting day. In relative terms, so given the you know the length of time we were at low rates, when they yep. moved us back up six hundred basis points, that was a lot. You know that in a funny way, this pivot had to happen uh, yep. along with the Greek chorus from the equity markets, of course, because the banks would not have survived if they had gone into year end uh, with the ten year where it was at the end of the third quarter. That would have been a disaster. Explain that comment. What does that mean? Well, when my mark-to-market is as ugly as it was, which is a negative equity position for the industry of $1.8 trillion. In other words, we've wiped out their equity, and then we have a negative balance. That's that's of concern, because remember, credit is still on the sidelines. We're not yep. even talking about credit yet. So if the Fed can't normalize rates and at least take some of the pressure off the banks, and I'll be specific, keep the 10-year where it is or lower in yield, uh, when credit becomes a concern next year, and it will, especially on the commercial side, income must be diverted to take care of loss mitigation. And as a result, they got to survive on what's left, right? It's it's funny, as I'm writing my comments on Basel, I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on mortgage servicing rights, my favorite asset. Do you know in the old days, a community bank would want to have enough servicing so they could keep the lights on? during a recession or a depression. In other words, pay their operating expenses and be able to put the entire interest rate nut into loss mitigation. We don't have an industry like that now. Um, and so, you know, I see rates as a very big point of vulnerability, which no one wants to talk about, of course. You know, nobody understands credit in the equity community, luckily. <laughs> well, very few people understand credit in the equity community, and I'm not sure many people understand it in the credit community, particularly when I hear them using terms like financial conditions indices from the um, Chicago Fed, or which the, the Chicago Fed has probably got a lot of people that went to that place, University of Chicago, which would yeah. explain some of the stuff that they have. But like, if you're doing everything off of the the, the Chicago Fed's financial conditions index, doesn't have the level of interest rates as a risk factor. It's actually a really extraordinary metric when you think about it, right? So I can hike interest rates to a thousand percent and it's perceived that I could have loose financial conditions 
as long as spreads are tight. And ironically, if the if the Fed were to hike interest rates to a thousand percent, and I'm actually going to show a couple of slides here because this is this is something that I think is really important for people to understand. You know, if you look at the senior loan officer surveys, and this is showing it in a slightly different way. We talked about this before the show began. You know, we're seeing the senior loan officers reporting demand as down, right? A lot of people look at these in the sinusoidal wave type charts, right? Where it's, you know, net percent uh, reporting lower demand followed by that number rising and falling, right? And so it looks like a sinusoidal wave. It lends itself very easily to analysis. But if you look at it on a cumulative basis, it brings up something really important. When that curve starts going down and there's fewer banks still net tightening position, it's still a positive number. It's still a positive net tightening. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you, you know uh, what you could add to this, Michael? If you pulled the FDIC unused credit lines for the different yeah. loan categories, you can get them for every loan category. Yeah. What I think you would find is, and this is what I was uh, observing in our last quarterly deck, is that there hasn't been a pullback by lenders. We're talking about a recession, but they have unused yeah. lines out there for commercial yeah. and resi, and you know, obviously credit cards. But then also... You don't see any indication of discomfort from them in terms of credit, not yet. Well, that's and so. So that's actually so. So I would argue that we're seeing two components. One is we're just not seeing demand for loans in the same way that right. we've seen historically, right? At this level of interest rates, people are basically saying, "Look, I, the way I interpret it is that the borrowers are looking at this level of interest rates and saying, very simply, that's a death knell, right? I I can't borrow." with those rates i i go out of business i basically signing my death warrant or so they I have would alternatives prefer... maybe they have alternatives okay so um expand on that because that actually is is a possibility right maybe the private credit space has stepped in and provided enough resources or in the household sector buy now pay later my uh... problem with that though is i think those definitely matter on the margin but they're so tiny. And in particular, private credit is a very different animal than banking, right? Oh, banking okay. has the unique feature of being able to create its own loans, create its own deposits and effectively self-finance itself, right? As long as there's a positive spread between your expected return and your credit losses, you can self-finance in a bank, right? You print a loan, you create a deposit, you know, the system doesn't work. Many other people have pointed this out. The system doesn't work the way we were taught in Econ 101, where, you know, you take your hard-earned paycheck, go deposit it into the bank, and they then use those funds to create a loan, right? We know that's really not how the system works. They actually effectively create the deposit, thereby creating the loan. If they need reserves, they can go out and find them in a variety of ways. But when demand is really low, Right. That means that that multiplier is not occurring. And if it's going through the private sector, it just doesn't work the same way. A hedge fund can't print its own loans. No, but if they have excess liquidity of the sort we've seen rush into the market in the last two weeks, yep. uh, then they will take that risk. It's old fashioned yep. finance. It's like household finance. That was yes. hard money lending. Yes. But I, think that's, I think that's. I love the I love that you introduced that term because that's really effectively what we're moving back to, whether yeah. it's intentional or not. And so that's the the question I would ask you is do you think this is intentional? Do you think the objective is to move to a hard money type standard? 
Because if that's the case, then private lending is ultimately a big part of the solution. But it just means that there's going to be a lot less credit in the system. It only appears to work, these innovative and fringe products, as long as credit costs are low. The moment credit comes back, it just collapses on itself. You know, I know by now, pay later, it's very topical. We're not going to talk about the companies involved. They're, I love writing about them, though. And, you know, they're okay now. But as soon as credit comes back, they get annihilated. Uh, it's happened every time. So they don't have the capacity it, that a bank does to manage credit. That's what it comes so, down to. So, so all you're saying with that, by the way, is um, when you're talking about when credit comes back, the buy now, pay later. Because buy now, pay later is basically the yeah. most expensive type of lending you can do. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's right. Right, maybe maybe right behind payday loans and and pawn shops, but or not some, much. Some of these marketplace loans. Look at the upfront fees on some of yeah. these products. Points, and yeah. yet the banks that buy this paper until now have been reporting pretty good results. I I query quite a lot of them, and they, you know, it's a it's a point of sale is what these things are. They're better yeah. at getting loans and banks, yeah. and that's not a trivial thing, Michael. I think. The, the facility with technology and the ability to build better mousetraps in terms of acquiring leads and closing those loans. You know, banks take a long time to catch up when there's a jump in technology. You, you saw this with PayPal and Zelle. How long did it take for the banks to put that on their website? <laughs> Years. <laughs> it, 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 it definitely did. It took a very, very long time. And when they did it, by the way, they did a terrible job of advertising and i remember looking at this thing called yeah. zell for, for years going like what is this thing why would i ever use but it your children knew what it was <laughs> my, and and my children yes my children have figured out any number of ways to ask for money they're great kids but they definitely have figured out the ways to ask for money hey, chris um, you back to, one, one second you're talking about these banks having big losses things would have been sad come the end of the year i i, I kind of want to push back on this it, i mean don't we have a problem with, with, with the banks in general, with the fact that we don't mark to market everything, we pick and choose? Yeah. I mean, yeah. all, I mean, I, I have accounts at, at Morgan Stanley and, and Merrill Lynch, and um, the last cycle, money came in, they put it into a money market account for me. Now That's they will right. not do that. They keep it, and I earn 0.2%, plus I pick, pick up the phone, call them, because it has to be a voice trade, it can't be even an email, and say, please move the money to a money market account. Now, Fidelity will, will put my money straight into a money market account. I mean, yeah. isn't that X gazillion dollars, you know, earning 500 basis points? And it's worth more than par. I mean, this, and the, like the London whale, that, that was so totally bogus. That was just a, an accounting anomaly between non-mark-to-market and mark-to-market assets. That was, I'm not sure why they even got the front page of the post. I mean, when you make your analysis, are you actually looking at it like with, 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 Mark to market for everything, make it kind of fair economically or not? I would have banks uh, basically mark everything to market uh, and then we'll deal with the earnings issue. If you talk to a small bank that's family owned or owned by the people who actually work there, they have very small treasuries. They mark everything to market. They're just old fashioned. You know, uh, most small community bankers follow that. But then the big guys play all sorts of games. And that's where I think the trouble comes in, because when people lose confidence in what they're seeing from a bank, then the bank runs into trouble. You saw this with Signature when they had a couple of quarters of losses of deposits tied to crypto. That was it. 
There was nothing wrong with Signature. We could have kept the bank open, but they lost confidence. That's what, you know, I still think they should have kept it open, by the way. Well, first, um, the public should have survived. I thought that they had a, a genius business plan. They had no losses, you know. I mean, listen, uh, they stayed open. No, but look, I, I know the institution well. I have family members that work for Edmund Software, and that, uh, that was a tragedy. But, um, you know, the banks can only survive so long with those mark-to-market losses because ultimately, as you know, Harley, they should sell those assets, take the loss, and reinvest at a higher rate. Now, today, it's easier. We picked up 10 points. So the smart people in the audience, I believe, are going to take advantage of this and sell and clean house going into the end of the year, if they can. The smart banks are going to sell their Fannie 3s and buy Fannie 5s, you're saying? Oh, something even better. Because you know what? Over time, if you sit with that three, it's going to eat you alive. You know that. Over 15, That's a 15, 18-year piece of paper. <laughs> that's not going anywhere. You know, the Fed is going to have their mortgage paper long after Chair Powell is in a nursing home. So, you know, that's that's the problem. And, you know, so this is- had this rally, take it, guys. This is a gift. Yeah, so so that that's actually I think a really important point that you just made, right? And we are seeing evidence. I think you said it well. We're seeing the smart money rotate into higher coupon paper, but one of the reasons for that I think is escaping some notice, which is as you um, think about money, instead of going into as Harley points out a point two you know basis point um, savings account at J.P. Morgan, or maybe you're getting three if you're going through Wells Fargo. Um, it, you know, that is being rolled off. It's being replaced by things like BTFP, which is effectively a fund, Fed funds rate um, oh. lending facility. It's being replaced by competitive products, CDs, et cetera, that's raising the cost of bank loans. And the key issue that you're effectively saying is, look, if I hold a two and three quarters or a 3% mortgage that has been marked down to 50 cents on my balance sheet, Yes, I will have high capital gain returns associated with that in a particularly in a particularly convex way as it approaches maturity. So I should theoretically hold on to it. But your point is, is that in an environment in which I have to pay out cash in the form of higher yields on yeah. um, my bank deposits or other sources of capital, then you're actually looking at turning banks into negative cash flow assets. Oh, yeah. Is that is that correct? Is that the right look, way to think about it? Look at Bank America. Look at the last quarter earnings. Look up their whack on their uh, resi, which is below three, and then look at their overall whack on their securities book. No, this is a mistake, guys. They they should have sold every mortgage they originated in that period. Put the money in T bills. To your point, right? That's where you hide in a really strange environment like quantitative easing. All you had to do is look at that wonderful chart on Bloomberg with the duration of the Ginnies. That's all you need to see because in 19, it started falling and it got down to two. You and I would have said that was impossible. And then they took it down to one. <laughs> and this is when Silicon Valley Bank was merrily continuing to maintain a 40% position in MBS versus total assets. And they probably had, what, 50, 60% prepayments every year. So... You know, train wreck. I, 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 it's hard. You know, people can be fooled, I think, into being too short term. And this was one of those cases. The bankers who kept their heads on 
and realize that QE was a temporary anomaly, I think have done very well. Uh, the dealers luckily don't have this problem, right? They have short duration books. But for banks that keep everything, um, I think keeping those securities was a mistake. I think most banks, but well, banks don't keep the stuff anymore. This why Quicken loans. They shouldn't, they Harley. They, you know, I mean, they no, no, I mean, I mean, the only loans these guys keep is, is high net worth loans to go yes. sell more services. Question right. for you. So we we had just transactionally because we are an investment show. Um, the Fed's calling for a four point six rate with the dots down from like it's five and a quarter now, so three cuts. Um, Market's price again three ninety five as of today. Yeah. Um, Who's right? Uh, I think the market underestimates Powell's uh, obsession with the early period of Volcker. I think he does not want to let up until he's absolutely sure that he can and that people are yelling at him to let up. Um, and I also think that the Fed as an institution does not want to see us go back down below four because they know that there's very little bang for the buck there. It was good for people who originate assets, but it was really bad for the system. And I think that the, you know, the cleanup is going to be really troublesome for the Fed. All Fed chairmen want to protect the agency. That's part of the reason Yellen embraced that T-bill strategy was to be helpful to the Fed and get the reverses back down. Um, but, you know, eventually Congress is going to say, where's our money? I wrote a funny piece for National Mortgage News today reminding everyone that the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is supposed to be paid out of the Fed's earnings, but they don't have any earnings right now. <laughs> so, you know, the quantitative easing may or may not have been appropriate, but it has caused a lot of negative uh, results that are going to be enduring. We're going to be living with them for a long time. Well, you and I agree completely because I just published, you know, this week saying that uh, Powell's not cutting anytime soon because his 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 no. deal is about ego. It's about his legacy. He is, yeah. he wants to be Volcker. He does not want to be Arthur Burns. And Arthur Burns took breaks up, took him down. That's then, right. You know, he's known as the, as the bad guy. This economy is still growing, Harley. Yeah. It's not like we have a problem. I, you know, people have been coming to me for six months going, Chris, we're above a trillion dollars for credit cards again. Isn't this a crisis? And I said, no, adjust that number for inflation. It's down 20% compared to what it was around 2008. And we can't get it to grow. Banks have stopped selling credit card receivables. They just retain them all. So, you know, again, why is it that the consumer isn't taking this money? The industry's got it out there like this. They're saying, take the money. They don't want it. So either there's somebody else out there giving the money or there's been a fundamental change in how they manage money and how they access liquidity when they need it. Because the industry is not seeing a pull. That's what's so fascinating about my, what Michael was saying earlier. So let's actually, let, let's extend that. Let's go to the next chart on that exact same concept, which is now this is looking at tightening conditions, right? And so it's presented in the same way. Again, we're all used to looking at this in the context of that sinusoidal wave, and our mind naturally says as it begins to fall, ah, credit conditions are easing, right? But they're still tightening. So like I, I prefer to highlight it for people in this way where you're looking at the cumulative dynamics. And this really highlights the point, Chris, that you were highlighting earlier, right? Or, or that you were emphasizing earlier about credit remains on the sidelines. This is the dog that didn't bark this time. We've seen an extraordinary increase in tightening and again 
tightening for banks themselves, as they think about it, would include the level of rates, not just the spreads, right? But they're suggesting that they're tightening and we haven't seen a credit response yet. Is that just a function of time at this level of interest rates? Or is there something else going on? As you alluded to, is there another supplier? Is there is there a reason why the demand is falling at the same time? Or should we incorporate the demand falling at the same time that the credit conditions are tightening and saying, well, we're probably overserved and so it really doesn't matter anyway? I think what you're seeing, Michael, is a couple of things. First, obviously, the liquidity that was provided during COVID was very helpful to a lot of consumers. And so yep. that tended to push down default rates. Home prices soared. So there's virtually no default risk in, in residential housing assets right now. But then the other funny thing is, is that, you know, quantitative easing in general tended to push down all default metrics for the same reason you're pushing up asset prices. And I'm not sure the picture we're seeing is accurate. In other words, I know loss rates are low. I know the volume of loss is low, but I keep worrying that I'm gonna open the paper one day or you know get the quarterly update from the FDIC and we're gonna see charge-offs double in a quarter. You know, that's so volatility. We've seen, we've seen elements of that. Um, we highlighted the maturity wall that's directly in front of us, right? And so this is right. looking at high yield. It's a very similar picture for IG. It's just a little bit broader, but it's a much bigger number. This is looking at monthly maturities in millions of dollars oh. um, in the high yield space, right? And so what had been non-existent is now about to start growing very rapidly. Harley was referring to this earlier, you know, that... Um, Paper was issued in 2020 and 2021 in the high yield space. Your typical issuance is between six and eight years of maturity. We've had almost no issuance for the past two years, dramatic decreases. Yeah. And so the maturity wall is kind of beginning to approach due in 24, 25. But the really critical thing that I think people often forget, these are often presented in the year of maturity is that you have to actually refinance before you're 12 months out. Because if you get inside 12 months and it becomes reclassified as a current liability, which can in many situations disqualify you on a credit basis. Oh yeah, and many of these guys you're referring to, Michael, were in the equity markets three and four years ago. They weren't even in the debt markets. Um, have you seen some of these uh, transactions where people have come into market with you know, very low coupons, but at a 15 or a 20 point discount, that's going to be fun a couple of years out. So there are many methods to use to manage this wall. But I would tell you that I think that, you know, if we assume the floor going forward is four instead of zero, what does that say about all these credits? What does it say about the equity markets for high yield credit? It creates a challenge. And it, it, so so again, like we, we because we have a mixed audience, I just want to make sure that we make very clear what you just said. So when you're doing a new issue, right, there's two ways that you can make it competitive with secondary market or target yields. One is by saying we're going to put a 12% coupon on it or a 9% a nine coupon on it. The other is we say we're going to put a 6% coupon on it and we're only going to lend you two thirds of what you ultimately have to repay us. That's in just mathematical terms, it's the same thing as a balloon payment on a mortgage, right? Exactly. Exactly. And yet I will okay. tell you there's several big mortgage issuers recently that came to market, 
The coupons are higher than they were, but they were oversubscribed. Both Penny Mac and Freedom could have easily doubled those those issues because investors like the credit. And they also like double-digit coupons, by the way. And they know they're going to get paid back. That's the beautiful thing about you know high-yield issuers that are solid money good, whereas some of these more recent arrivals, I think, are going to end up being restructured. We certainly see that in the world of housing finance. Most of the uh, offspring of 2021 are in various stages of restructuring now. So it's a sad. So if you, yeah. So if you were to play that story through, is the maturity wall what you're focused on? Because that's, I'll, let me just show one more chart. This is one that everybody is familiar with, right? Oh, um, you know, these I'm are, this is, um, this is my credit model that I've used for years um, in, uh, my credit model is in black. You can see the actual high yield credit spreads in kind of the pale gold, and then I've overlaid against that the actual levels of bankruptcies. And you can see that at least historically, not only does it track credit spreads pretty well, but it also actually does a good job of tracking bankruptcies, which lags this indicator. And now we're looking at a divergence, effectively a spread that has opened up in the classic alligator jaws that, you know, the only thing I've seen anything like it is the lead into the GFC. It, yes. Do you read anything into this? Does this make sense? It does. You go through a long period of muted credit events, and now we're back into a period where credit has a real cost. And I think you're going to see a lot of bankruptcies avoided for larger issuers because they're ne going to negotiate. You saw an example of this with WeWork. It didn't. It didn't function in that case, but they tried to negotiate before filing. Um, so in many cases, the creditors will look at the situation and say, well, what's the point of a filing? Let's negotiate now. But you will see consumer, small, and mid-sized businesses file because they're difficult to restructure. I would not be surprised to see this number go higher, Michael, because when you've gone through a period of excessively low rates that make credit essentially have no cost, uh, it makes sense that we're going to swing uh, back to the other end of the beam. I, th I think that's right. And, and so what you're referring to are the prepackaged bankruptcy, et cetera. That for makes sure. sense if you're doing it for a large enough entity. Yeah. But the smaller entities are the ones that are really being hit. I didn't well, include the chart. I wish I had this, the NFIB's small business uh, survey just came out. And yeah. credit availability in a time period in which everyone's telling us that financial conditions are easing, their measures of credit availability, at least according to the surveys, plummeted. Right. So they fell back example. to new loan. After 2008, the FDIC basically sold about 500 banks. When I was yep. in control, I looked at a lot of those failures, and many of the holding companies didn't file bankruptcy, which means they all went into the conference room, they closed the door, they looked at each other. The lawyers kind of said, okay, we're going to do it this way. They said, fine. And off they went because it's cheaper. Yep. You know, and that's well, the, 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 there's having been through the process, there's almost nothing. And not a bankruptcy process, but having been through legal processes, there's almost nothing more expensive than a lawyer who is going to um, be more than happy to tell you about the different ways you can use it. So oh. um, I, I, I do want to, we're, we're, we actually have managed to use up almost all of our time already, believe it or not. There were a couple of other charts that I wanted to very quickly, let me just pause and see if there's anything else that I wanted to hit on. Oh, I know what I wanted to hit on. I wanted to hit on this. 
So I want to share one more screen. Next time I'll do bank charts for you guys. Perfect. I appreciate that. Um, this is bank deposits from peak, right? There we and go. this is this is a really important chart. This was the one that kind of flagged the impending issues associated with Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank's loss of deposits in a yeah. very classic bank run component basically forced them to crystallize their losses. Um, we've paused, but in a weird way, like we've never come down and sat at these levels. What's, you know, my read on what's transpired is a combination of BTFP and actually far more important was the treasury focusing issuance on bills. If you think about the dynamic of a choice between reverse repo and bills in terms of what goes into a money market fund, reverse repo doesn't require me to have a bank deposit owning bills does require me to have a bank deposit. And so all the money that has been flowing into money market funds that has now gone to buy the bills that Janet Yellen is issuing yep. are showing up in this bank deposit metric. But once we exhaust the reverse repo, once we exhaust the capacity to simply issue bills and to begin to change that, my read is this number starts marching back down again. Is that the right yes. way to think about it? I think you'll see deposits, particularly non-interest bearing transactional deposits going somewhere else. You're gonna see continued growth in time deposits, although it's decelerating now for the fifth quarter. So that crisis that we had beginning of the year is, is ameliorating. And in, what's interesting is I think you're gonna see a lot of banks go to a much more old fashioned structure where they have maybe 20% of their balance sheet funded with term debt. Uh, and the regulators actually like this. They don't like the volatility in deposits because people can take their smartphone and just push a button. I saw this uh, during uh, you know the crisis in uh, in the you know last year, in the beginning yeah. of this uh, this year, with you had commercial depositors of Signature Bank, people who had accounts with billions of dollars in escrow balances, moving them. Okay, these are not the kind of relationships that are supposed to move quickly, but they did because you had not-for-profits and all sorts of fiduciaries wake up one morning and go, whoops, we have to move our money to Chase, right? So now that that's done, I think you'll see banks looking to diversify their funding and term it out. Ironically, the non-banks are going to do that too because the winners in that contest are the ones who've already put out term debt in the high-yield market. So I think and, and one some of, structural changes in banks. And, and one of the great ironies of what you're highlighting when you talk about the move to time deposits, increasingly that's unnecessary yeah. for many people. So, you know, there's obviously a loss that I have in terms of flexibility if I move my paycheck into a CD, a time deposit, as compared to simply keeping it in the bank, right? I lose flexibility around that. But it depends um, on the bank. If the bank has a real relationship with their customers, I'll give you a great example, George Gleason at OZK, he had his managers go out and engage with the customers in the first and second quarters, and they raised their deposits. They, they increased the rate, obviously, right? If you can talk to your customers, and they in turn, especially your small and mid-sized business customers who have a reason to do business with you, they don't want to do business with a big bank. They don't get any service. You know what I'm saying? But they have to have a reason and a comfort level that lets them stay. And so the banks who were able to engage with customers were fine. The banks who didn't saw 15, 
outflow in a quarter. And that's why some of them got into trouble. So, you know, it depends on the business. If you know your customers, you're in a much better space. Got it. So that, that relationship is really important. I agree with that. Now, so let's let's wrap this up. And actually, a, a, a great question was offered by Mark Jacobs. What investment ideas flow from this, right? When we think about this discussion, it feels to me that we're saying, hey, wait a second, credit is about to emerge as a challenge. That's oh. likely to be something we need to watch in 2024. Yes. The maturity wall is really important. What about the banks themselves, Chris? Without mentioning names, how what's your what's your thought on the banks themselves at this point, having repriced to the levels that they have? I think the industry is kind of almost done normalizing expenses and income when it comes to the interest rate side of the house. Uh, the non-interest earning side of the house has been trending down for a couple of quarters because there's no deal flow. So there's a lot of components of non-interest income that are not uh, really hitting the kind of levels they want to see. My sense is we'll start growing income again. We'll start seeing that interest margin slowly going up. Um, but, you know, what the Fed does or does not do with interest rates isn't the point. I think funding costs are going to continue to rise slowly. And the question is, can we get more return out of assets to help balance this ledger? Because, you know, the real interesting thing about the industry is when you look at the return on earning assets going back to the 90s, uh, it was basically going down through that whole period. Yeah. At some point, we've got to let it go back up, Michael. Yeah. You know, there are fixed yeah. costs here. I, <laughs> I think that's right. I think the challenge then becomes the one of, can you find the demand at those higher levels of interest rate? Eventually you do, but there is an adjustment process in all of this as you're highlighting, right? But this and, chart, you, you've shown us this bank deposit chart. You know, we got to run off a couple trillion dollars where the bank deposit. You know, the chairman has said QT will continue. So if we're going to let the Fed run off, every dollar that runs off the Fed is a dollar of deposits that disappears because they're going to go buy those T-bills, right? Uh, the mechanics of this are fascinating. And the Fed still doesn't know where the floor is. You know, it's like they're in the dark and we've turned off the radar and ALS and we're bringing the plane in. We got the lights on, but we're still not quite sure where the ground is. And that is, well, I think, it's the biggest concern. Yeah, and, and, and just on that point, and then we're going to wrap it up, but the, the the emphasis that I would make on that when you talk about we don't know what that level is, unfortunately, the only way we find where that level is is something happens, right? And yeah. it's not an aggregate phenomenon. There's almost no scenario. Part of the reason why we saw J.P. Morgan pick up so many deposits, there's almost no scenario under which J.P. Morgan finds itself in, in a stress situation in terms of cash availability. Uh -huh. He has most of the free uh, reserves out there that are available to lend to the street. So they're basically done for the year now. It's the 14th. Um, it's not as bad as 2018 in terms of liquidity. I think the street can go to the standing repo facility. They have alternatives. But the banks have no incentive to extend themselves. That's the key thing. And frankly, under Dodd-Frank and the Volcker Rule and everything else, they're not allowed to. I'm not sure that's a good thing. I love the dissenting vote. Uh, at the SEC, by the way, on this uh, securities clearing thing. Hester is absolutely right. You know, so, um, and, and unfortunately, there's so, there's, there's so many rich topics we get to talk about. Um, but we should have spent a little bit of time on Basel III. We should have spent some time on central clearing. Um, these are all areas that have become impactful. But effectively, your, your key takeaway is 
things are better, but they're not good. And we need to be oh. very aware of the credit cycle in this next component. In other words, if we were to sit down six to 12 months from now, and I were to put up, put back up this chart um, showing, you know, the dog that didn't bark in terms of tightening or widening credit spreads, you would expect that we'd have something pop up in that time period is the easiest way to kind of summarize a lot of these views. Yeah, the industry still has a liquidity problem because of these legacy assets, and they're going to literally have to just dig their way out, which is you okay. know, not great for earnings. All right, fantastic. Brent has been sitting there patiently. Brent, I'm going to let you take us home. Chris, thank you so much. Perfect. Well, hey, thank you so much for an enjoyable conversation, gentlemen. And um, to the audience out there, please remember to register for our next Keeping It Simple installment on January 11th variable or variant weather, where we're going to have special guest Tian Yang with variant perception. And he, Mike and Harley will have a very interesting 2024 market outlook. And with that being said, thank you again all for joining us. Hope you all have a good rest of your evenings and afternoons and happy holidays to you as well. Yeah. Thank you guys. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everyone. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.